For a morning lesson from the Old Testament this morning, we would endeavor to read from the second chapter of the book of Esther. The book of Esther, chapter 2. In chapter 1 of the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus had a queen by the name of Vashti, and Vashti had not obeyed the edict of the king to come to the palace. And due to that, she lost her position, and King Ahasuerus was looking for a new queen. After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him, Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace, to the house of the women, unto the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them, And let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Vashti. The thing pleased the king, and he did so. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when maidens were gathered together unto Shushan the palace, to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house, to the custody of of Haggai, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her her things for purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her, and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not shewed her people, nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not shew it. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the women's house to know how Esther did, and what should become of her. Now when every maid's turn was come to go in to King Ahasuerus after that she had been twelve months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with sweet odors, and with other things for the purifying of the women. Then thus came every maiden unto the king, whatsoever she desired was given her, to go with her out of the house of the women unto the king's house. In the evening she went, and on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women, to the custody of Shaashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, 
the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto king Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet shewed her kindred, nor her people, as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. In those days, while Mordecai sat in the king's gate, two of the king's chamberlains, Bigthan and Teresh, of those which kept the door were wroth and sought to lay hand on the king Ashuerus. And the thing was known to Mordecai, who told it unto Esther the queen, and Esther certified the king thereof in Mordecai's name. And when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. Therefore they were both hanged on a tree, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles before the king. morning. Brother Darrell has asked for the reading of James chapter 1. James 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. 
Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say, when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of His own will begat He us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of His creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. greet each one and also in the name of the Lord Jesus today and it's just a great blessing to be here worshiping together and we as has already been prayed trust the Holy Spirit will indwell every one of our hearts and teach us wisdom very impressive opening and I suppose more so for me because much of what was said aligns with much of what we have on our hearts today. And we're always appreciative of the Spirit working in that way. As we consider David giving instructions to his son Solomon and telling him that the most important thing and responsibility as his father's son that he was going to have in life was to get wisdom. 
Brother Aaron described very well what wisdom is. I think wisdom is uh, probably of multiple, comes from multiple sources. It comes from instruction. In this case, from a father to a son. It comes from experience, from the things we experience in life and, and the practical application of the results of those experiences and the, the future of our life. All those things are wisdom. I remember hearing one time of a young man came to a, an older man that he had great respect for, and he, the younger man said, you know, it just seems like as I watch your life, um, you make all the right calls. You make the right decisions. And how, how do you do that? Well, the old man thought about it, and he said, it's probably just for wisdom. And the young man said, well, how, how do you get wisdom? The old man thought a little bit, and he said, well, by doing a lot of things wrong. I think for older men that has lived life, that's kind of our experience. You should be learning. We should be learning as we experience life from all the many decisions we make on a daily basis, what works and what doesn't work. And I think David was sharing those things with with Solomon. So he said, get it. It's the principal thing. It made me think about Rusty Flora at conference on Monday night. You probably all remember this, him telling about his son the week before they went to conference. His son said, well, Dad, he said, what's the main thing uh, supposed to get out of conference? And his dad said, well, Rusty told his son, you know, you we go there to worship God. We go there to worship and extol the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to have a lot of opportunity to do that. His son listened and then looked at him and he said, well, what's the, what's the next main thing? And we can all relate to that because conference is a lot of things. And life is a lot of things. We're thinking a little bit today about what is the main thing in life and in our religious walk in life. But I would like, before we get there and start, I would like to just ask you in relation to the opening, we'd just like to ask you all, what, what is five nuggets of truth that you could set down and write that your father taught you about life. Well, that would take some time. So we'll say three. What, what's the top three things as you think about it? And if you listen to Brother Aaron's exhortation to prayer this morning, what, the top three things that your father taught you about wisdom and its application to life, what, what would you say they are? Well, that's pretty tough, too. It takes some time. How about one? Can you think, if you was going to just simply boil down your upraising and your time with your father, those of you that had fathers in your home, what comes to mind first of what you learned from your father concerning wisdom and its application to life? Just, just the one thing. Some of us are going to struggle with that. I had a cousin in Virginia. He's a few years older than I, not many, not too much older, but a cousin in Virginia was having a conversation with many years ago. But we was talking about life, and he said, well, he said, truth of the matter is, he said, I was 12 years old until I realized my name wasn't Gitwood. And that's what he remembered about his dad. Gitwood. Solomon was writing here that 
David, his father, taught him that he was to get wisdom. And he taught him how to get wisdom and how the application of that wisdom would deal with his marriage and deal with his relationships. And so we just ask ourselves this morning, what is it we're passing on to our posterity about wisdom? What is it they will remember? What I'm thinking about the, today has been on our mind for quite some time just due to the experiences in life that we, we experience. I'd already been thinking about this a little when Rusty said on Monday night there at Cedarville that his son asked, what's the main thing? What would you say? Uh, what the main thing was about the application of your knowledge and the wisdom that you've gained at your father's hand and at your mother's side and at your experiences with the church and with worshiping and young folks and what what is it that you have learned that would be the primary thing, the main thing about your life and your responsibility to life? And your mind hasn't been running like our mind has. You, we all have different experiences. But my mind finally settled on this as far as the Scripture goes and what the Bible says that the main thing is. It's found in the last chapter, the last verse, I'm sorry, in the first chapter of the book of James. And it just simply says this, the pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. If you don't remember anything else about worship today and about this message, the things that you'll hear, the things we have on our mind, that's the main thing. And we like to break it down maybe just a little farther. We're thinking more about the first part of that instruction, the first part of what pure religion and, and a subject undefiled before God, and that just simply means so very important to God. The one thing, the main thing that is so very important to the heart of God is the fatherless the widows. Hasn't always been so with me. We're still learning and gaining wisdom in this most important area of our life. We'd like to talk about the fatherless a little bit today, mainly, and that is no disrespect to our widows, which we have several amongst us and we have great respect for, and many of these applications that we're going to think about today applies to them as well, but we're thinking about the fatherless. We get together with our family, a large percentage of our grandchildren are, don't know who their fathers were, their natural birth fathers were. Some do, some don't. Some that do. The experience was way different than Proverbs chapter 4. 
the effect that that has on their lives as we view it and as we are experiencing it with them is mind-boggling. The effects of fatherlessness. We'd first of all, we'd like to think about some facts. Number one, some facts about the fatherless. These are just things we have read from, from others. But 85% of all youth in prisons or detention centers or juvenile detention centers either do not know or have no relationship with their birth fathers. That's no big surprise. 71% of youth that drop out of school are fatherless. 71% of young girls who find themselves expecting or pregnant are fatherless. 85% of children that have behavior disorders and are being treated and many are, that are not being treated for these behavior disorders, 85% are fatherless. In the latest U.S. Census data, it has shown that there's 18.5 million children growing up in the United States without their fathers, which makes the United States a world leader in this particular percentage. 18.5 million children growing up without their fathers. Nearly 75% of fatherless American children will find themselves living, living in poverty at least through age 11. And without any surprise, fatherlessness is the number one cause of poverty in, in America. There's a whole different set of statistics for poverty. Today, 90% due to technology that we have, 90% of expectant mothers that find out before the birth of their child that it will be Downs abort the fetus. It is thought that in the United States there's been over a hundred million abortions in the last 30 years. We'll be second to China. China's had possibly 160 million abortions in the last 30 years. These statistics could go on and on, but they're just facts about the world we live in. And those facts trickle down to affect us in so many various ways. And I want to say, first of all, before I get very far today, that I am blessed. And the older I get, the more wisdom I gain. I gain, I am more and more blessed by the interest in this congregation at Cutler Ridge of the fatherless. I am blessed. And God is glorified of the interest that there is in fatherless. I want to think just a little bit secondly, number two, about the fallout from fatherlessness. These facts, some of them are kind of startling, and there could have been more, but 
What's the fallout from, from fatherlessness? How does it look? What does it mean? How is it experienced? We find out this word fatherless just simply is translated absence. And that's easy to understand. It just means absence. So we want to think about, as we think about the fallout from fatherlessness, about maybe four different areas that deals with the absence of fathers in a child's life. First of all, there's just the obvious physical absence to be dealt with. And it grieves the father's heart that there is the fatherless because God designed that for a child to be brought into the life that it takes a male and a female. And it takes two to bring that child into life. And as a result, it takes two for that child, a male and a female, a father and a mother, both to influence that child as it is raised and as it is nurtured, and it grows through childhood to be an adult. And so when it's not the case and there is the absence of a father in the home, there is going to be an obvious disconnect from so many things in life that needs to be taught and that can only be taught by the presence of a father, the physical presence of a father. The fallout from that in the lives of children is that the world by a child is seen as a safe place or a fearful place due to the presence of a father in the home. And not only that, but how they see their parents' relationship. If a child is brought up in a healthy home where there is a father and a mother and a child is brought up even though it might not be a perfect home and none of our homes are, at least the child learns to look on and listen and grasp how family works and how relationships works and really how you deal with the things that happen to us in the world by how mother and father relate to those things. A child just naturally grasps that and learns that. When a child is brought up in a fatherless home where the dad is absent, he's gone, they don't possibly in many instances don't even know who he is, they have to somehow grasp a picture of the world from their mother or whoever the caretaker in their life as a child might have been. And it's going, their, their worldview is going to be distorted. It's very, very obvious. It's distorted by the things they have not seen. It is distorted by the things that they have. It's distorted by the things that they experience due to the absence of a father who loves them and cares for them and affirms them. And so, a whole new generation is growing up in our midst and has been for years whose worldview is totally distorted. And we'll get into that a little as we go on. By the absence, the physical absence of their father. There is an emotional absence when there is an absence of the father, a fallout from fatherless, an, an emotional absence. And much could be said about this, but though divorce was very, very rare in the 50s and 60s, 1950s and 60s, it did happen from time to time, but it was rare. But there was a fallout that happened during those years and the years to follow. And it is where all of a sudden affluence became available. And coming through the war years and World War II and coming out of that, the economy was booming. 
and the baby boomer fathers who was born through that time, through the time of the war and following the war, the fathers that came out of that time had economic opportunities that they had never had before. And they took those economic opportunities and the recreation and the sports opportunities and, and the things that came was made available to them through those years. They spent more and more time away from home and engaged in work and engaged in recreation and engaged in time away from the family and in the meantime lost the hearts of their wives and their families. And as the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and even up into the time we live today came about, families began to lose their identity because the fathers was distracted by good times. The emotional absence of families is a, is a huge issue. Through this period of time, children were raised up in the homes where fathers were emotionally absent. And so it's not hard to go back in history. And, and many of us that are older have experienced the times of all of a sudden the free love and the peace movements. And if it feels do, good, do it. You know, just the personal identity rather than a family identity that, that, that is so, so very important for a home to be healthy and for a child to be raised in a healthy emotional atmosphere. And through all these things, sin has abounded and Satan has laughed. And homes have been destroyed and lives have been destroyed from the fallout of the emotional absence of fathers in the home. Thirdly, the fallout from fatherless has been a psychological absence. <clears throat> A psychological absence, a father-daughter relationship really sets the stage for that daughter and all her future relationships. God meant it so when He said, uh, set the stage for marriage and created man and woman and that a man and woman should leave their respective homes and be joined together and become one flesh and, and that they should bring forth godly seed and raise them up to the glory of God. There was a psychological presence and involvement when those children come into those kind of homes where a, a daughter sees a father who is present and engaged and loves her mother. He sees how a woman should be treated, as our brother said. A daughter is able and blessed to see her father teach her what she should expect from a, from a man and from a future husband and what her, what her goals would be, what her wishes would be, to have a, a man just like daddy that loves her mother, one that will love me. That should be the dream of every young woman. A psychological thing going on in her head. But we have a world and we live in a world where girls, we have masses of girls and young women that have been abandoned by their fathers. And instead of this, this feeling of safety and this feeling, this feeling of being taught, and, and being expectant of what the future of life will hold, we have a world full of girls that are rejected. They have been rejected. Their father has not been part of their life. They are unwanted. They feel unlovely. And they are, uh, by, by the, they, they feel totally separated and disconnected from the people in their life who should be the most flint most influential. And so what happens to those girls? We're talking about the fatherless. We don't have so many here today. 
this relates to, but we do have some. And we have some in our family. So what happens when a young girl is raised in a home where she's disconnected from her father? She feels unloved, unlovely, unwanted and rejected. Well, she still has a need in life to be somebody. And so when she has not received the thing that God ordained that she should receive in a godly home, and she has to find it somewhere else. And what they, what children learn to do when the father's not present in the home is they learn to depend upon themselves. They become very self-reliant. It is not ideal. It is just simply a result of the father being gone in the home. And, and the world causes this something called autonomy. A child learns autonomy. And we're talking about girls here, but the autonomy that they learn is that they be self-governing and that they be self-reliant. They be self-directing and they are separate themselves from any other authority uh, influences in their life, including religion many times, because they were forced to become autonomous, self-governing, self-directing. And so we wonder where all these marches are coming in the last couple of days from Millions of people across the United States when the Supreme Court finally, and frankly beyond my comprehension, stood up against abortion. And we praise God. Thank you, Keith and Mary. Uh, not here today, but listening in or maybe sometime for, for reminding us to pray for those justices who took the Word of God and placed it above autonomy. And the reason there are marches in between because there is women up in arms and men as well and, and governors all across this world up in arms because of what the U.S. Supreme Court did is because we have trained ourselves to be autonomous. That what I believe and what I want to do with my own body is up to me. God or no one else will tell me what to do with my life. One of the placards and the signs that we've seen in the midst of a large group of women was, I don't need Jesus. I just need abortion. And so guess who is the author of all this confusion and all this lie? We already know. But much of this started from fatherlessness. I am convicted to my heart, in my heart, in my soul that it's true. Where were the fathers? Where are the fathers? Eighteen and a half million children in the United States today don't expect this problem to go away. Because we have forced our young girls to be autonomous. So when that happens, it leads to a deceptive belief that we do have control over our own bodies. And what we do with our own bodies and what we do with our own life is strictly up to us. Because we have not been taught wisdom, we don't understand consequences. We don't understand eternal eternal consequences. That there are eternal consequences for every choice that is made. Whether we are fatherless or whether we have been raised by a godly father we're still going to be responsible at the judgment bar of God. What this world has taught us and what this fatherless culture has taught us is that uh, there is situations in life are up to situational ethics. It's up to what we believe about how to respond to any situation in life. And moral standards are not a part of the equation. Scriptural moral standards, because they've not been taught, they're not understood, they're not believed, and so all of life becomes situational ethics. Whatever decision I make about my life and about myself is one that you should accept and the world should accept. 
It all comes from a lack of direction, a lack of teaching, a lack of wisdom, a lack of fathers in the home, psychological absence of fathers, the fallout from that. Father-son relationships. Well, the father-son relationship is just simply designed to teach a young man, first of all, the standards of God's laws. A father-son relationship is the requirement of a father to teach his son how to value his mother and to respect his mother. And through a father teaching his son how to respect his mother, he teaches his son how to respect his sisters. And in the process of a father teaching his son how to respect his mother and his sisters, he teaches his son how to relate to women. He teaches his son how to respect their identity, their their bodies, the fact that they are different, that they are made by God. He teaches his son to respect them, the purity laws of God. And when he doesn't, and the son is fatherless, he goes back to the same rule of self-governing, self-directing, moral independence, autonomous to doing whatever he feels like he wants to do. And then when there's results, he has the, the freedom to run and escape. And it happens over and over and over again when the father has not taken his place in his son's life. I've read recently there have been 38 mass shootings in the United States since Uvalde, Texas in the middle of May. That's since Uvalde, where 19 children and two adults were killed by a young man full of rage and hate. 38 since then. You wonder where it's going to stop. Well, I'm going to tell you this morning, it's not going to. This year in 2022, it's averaged one of those somewhere every day in the United States where four or more have been killed or injured in mass shootings. Why is it? I got an IG from a niece of mine who is a public school teacher just shortly after the Uvalde, Texas shootings, and she just said, you know, what would life be like if we were spending as much money in our public school system on emotional health as we are on sports? I don't, not involved very much in, in, uh, those conversations, but this was my niece. I know her pretty well, and so I responded this time. And I said, what, imagine what it would be like if every student of yours in school was raised in a Christian home by a mother and a father who loved each other, who loved their children, taught them good scriptural morals, and affirmed them and accepted them, and sent them out the door every day to school, would it make any difference in your classroom? And she replied, well, I believe that too. But the problem is we, go to the, we don't go to the right place for the source to fix the issues that are going on in our country. We don't go to the right place. We can spend millions and billions of dollars on mental health, and we're going to be forced to. Going to be forced to. But that's not the source. 
It's not the problem. And until we wake up as our own personal families, as we wake up as churches, until we wake up in America that the problem is of our fathers and the fatherlessness in our homes and the lack of direction and leadership according to the Word of God, it's going to get worse. And it is. I can just tell you. In a worldview, it will. But it doesn't have to in your home. It doesn't have to in this church. It doesn't have to in the community that we represent. If we're willing to pick up the reins and to become teachers of wisdom that God wants us to be as fathers, <clears throat> the psychological absence. Well, the, the fourth thing, uh, one more thing about the psych, psychological absence. We, Cheryl and I had an opportunity recently to view a, a uh, it was a, uh, what would you call it? It was a, a podcast, I suppose, of a young man that works for Focus on the Families. He's from Australia. And he went on a tour, mainly to the United States, to find out what the issues were with families and with the fatherless in the United States of America. He interviewed a lot of different people, and there's a lot that could be said about it, but one of them impressed me and, and, and had an impact on me as we think about fathers and sons and the psychological issues that exist around us, and even sometimes in my own life. Because of relationships between father and sons, he, he, he interviewed a chaplain of the Detroit Lions football team, professional football team. They were standing up at the top of the stands stadium that held 80,000 people, and he was talking about fatherlessness. He said, I can just tell you this much, the chaplain said, that he said on Sundays, he said, out of the gate down there from the locker room out onto the field comes about 40 very gifted, handsome, wealthy young men that just run out onto that field and there's 80,000 fans standing, cheering them on and, and clapping for them and affirming them. And he says, I can tell you that the great majority of those men that run out onto the field and hear all that adulation only want one thing. They have told me they would really desire one thing, and that's to get out on the field and to search the bleachers in the stands and see the face of their father and to see him wave a wave of affirmation to them. They would trade the adulation of 80,000 fans. They would trade the adulation and the riches and the wealth and the lifestyle and the cars and everything that football has brought them for just one opportunity to hug their father. <clears throat> Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction keep himself unspotted from the world. There is a fourth fallout from fatherlessness, and it's a spiritual absence. <clears throat> it's a spiritual absence. Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon was telling all of us that would come after him and have read his words, what his father taught him, 
about a spiritual presence in her life that has to do with wisdom. We live in a society that has long gone in our public schools especially and in, in many of our homes that are broken homes and, and just simply surviving on a day-to-day basis. We, have, we live in a society that has ceased to teach moral absolutes that God teaches and that the Word of God teaches. But instead, we are forced to believe moral relativism or to each your own. You're a boy and want to be a girl? You have the liberty to be a girl. You're a girl and want to be a boy? Be a boy. Let the government pay for an operation. And the government supports it. We live in an absolute, total wreck of a society today. She don't mind me mentioning that. In our small group Bible study, one of our sisters recently told about driving a school bus. And there's one seventh grade boy, I guess it's a boy, that she asked to keep right behind her on the school bus because of all the conflicts surrounding about who he is. Doesn't know. It's part of a spiritual fallout of a lack of moral absolutes taught by fathers in the home. And there's lots and lots of stories like that that could be told. And it's not a new story. It's, it's the things that we see happening to us. The Apostle Paul wrote about it in the first chapter of the book of Romans. And we hate to read these words. And I'm just going to read them because I tell you, it's real life. And it's things that's going on in our society today and father because of the lack of fathers taking their responsibility. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath shewed unto them. Nature itself hath taught them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because of that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And wherefore God also gave them up to the uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. foundation of all those things? It's the devil having free course with children and with men and women who believe that there is moral relativism and that they are their own God. And they make up their own rules about who they want to be, what gender they want to be, 
what they want to do with their lives. They make up their own rules. And the Apostle Paul, in writing the Romans, states very clearly what the result of all that will be. A spiritual absence due to fatherlessness. When we are not taught biblical standards and morals for marriage and relationships, we devalue the bedrock and the meaning of both. When we devalue the sanctity, respect, and boundaries in marriage or a physical relationship, you devalue marriage and God's will for marriage. And when you devalue marriage and the place of a man and a woman in that marriage, you devalue the results of that marriage, which in this case we're talking about children. And when you devalue children, because you devalue marriage and because you devalue the Lord's will for marriage and physical relationships, you devalue life. And when you devalue life, you stand for abortion. And you stand for whatever it is in life that makes you happy, you think. As we read this and heard this little podcast, this man who was doing the interviews interviewed some women who had had abortions. And some that counseled women that had had abortions, and he asked them, he says, did that make you happy? And not one. In fact, the counselor that was interviewed says you will never find one that if you set them down one-on-one, found out that them being in control of their own life instead of God found happiness. You won't find them. I need to move on here. Thirdly, we want to think about something that begins to directly challenge me and directly challenge us all, I hope. We want to think about finding and filling the needs of the fatherless. So a pure religion and undefiled before the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. How do we find and fill those needs. <clears throat> I want to think about some scriptures as we think about finding and filling the needs of the fatherless and what God has to say about it in His Word. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and we want to go there and read just a few words. Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 15. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them, and He chose their seed after them, even you above all people, as it is this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. For the Lord your God is God of gods, and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons, nor taketh reward. He doth execute the judgment of the fatherless and the widow. And loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Love ye therefore the stranger. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Thou shalt fear the Lord thy God. 
him shalt thou serve, and to him shalt thou cleave and swear by his name. He is thy praise, and he is thy God, that hath done for thee these great and terrible things which thine eyes have seen. Thy fathers went down into Egypt with threescore and ten persons, and now the Lord thy God hath made thee as the stars of heaven for multitude. And mainly what we want from that is the mind of God towards the fatherless. The mind of God towards that is God of gods and the Lord of lords, a great God and a mighty and a terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward, doth execute judgment of the fatherless and widow and loveth the stranger in giving him food and raiment. Right in the middle of this discourse of how God loved his people, and brought them out of Egypt. They went down 70 strong. They come forth as strong as the stars and the sand on the sea is for multitude. How great our God. But right in the middle, His heart is for the fatherless and for the widow. Somehow it just made an impression on us. We think about the book of Esther that we read this morning for a morning lesson. I'll tell you what drew my attention to the second chapter of the book of Esther. How did Esther get to be queen? Was it just her good looks? Just her winning the personality contest? No, I'll tell you how Esther got to be queen. In verse 5, Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carrying away, had carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. Now think a little bit about this man. This man had his own issues in life. This man was taken by the Babylonians right out of his home, right out of his homeland. He had his hands most likely tied behind him in shackles on his feet and was forced to march several hundred miles to Babylon to start a whole new life. He had been there for quite some time. This was the man. This was some of the suffering this man knew. But in verse 7, and he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. In other words, Hadassah, or Esther, who was destined to become queen, was this man's first cousin. He no doubt was mostly several years older than her. But all of a sudden, he realized in the midst of his own struggles, in the midst of his own responsibilities, in the midst of his trying to find his way and his life in a foreign land and everything that went along with that, his first cousin had lost her father and had lost her mother. And he found her. And he took her into his home. He took her into his life. I don't even know where their home was when he found her. But he made a home for her. And he raised up this maid, this, this, this Hadassah. And she had, and, and the maid was fair. And she turned out to be beautiful whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. And so it came to pass when the king's commandment, his decree was heard, 
And many maidens were gathered together into Shushan the palace, that Esther was brought by this man, Mordecai, because of her value, knowing that she would make the best queen. I just want from that that Mordecai did something that many, several here in this room today have done. You have no idea what the results of that's going to be when you make that call. Mordecai had no idea when he took his first cousin, Hadassah, into his care and keeping and began to teach her the laws of God, began to teach her the wisdom of God, began to teach her that though she had lost her father and her mother, her life had meaning, and began to teach her that she was accepted and loved by Him. But beyond being loved and accepted by Him, she was loved of her heavenly Father. And because she was a soul, God had a place for her and a purpose for her in life. And every day I have no doubt that He found Himself in prayer with her, teaching her to seek the Father's will for her life, having no idea that there was going to be a door opened at some time in the future that God was going to take this fatherless and this motherless young girl and turn her into the queen of all the land. And she was so beautiful that in everyone's presence that she came in, she was instantly the favored girl. The chamberlain, she was the favorite. Every place she went. They filed those women past that king, no doubt all of them beautiful, from all over the king's provinces. But it was Esther. Because Mordecai had instilled hope. He had instilled love. He had instilled God's principles in her heart. And it was so very obvious that it couldn't be escaped wherever she went. Finding and filling the needs of the fatherless. And we remember what Brother Lowell talked about on Sunday at conference. Mainly the subject of his message on Sunday there at conference was, and who knoweth whether thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. And he talked to us all. But that was the case with Esther. And that was the question that Mordecai asked him at the very crucial, most crucial, uh, crucial moment of her life when she would accept who she was, that she was a Jewess. And though she was queen of the land, she was willing to give up her life. If I perish, I perish because I believe God and I know God. So where are the fatherless? Finding and filling the needs of the, uh, of the fatherless. Where, where are they at? If that's pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father, where do we find them? I know the whole message could have been based on this question. But I guess I could say from experience that they're everywhere. We have them in our extended family. And it's an unbelievable ministry that our children and our grandchildren are involved in. There are neighbors. There are neighbors. When every marriage, and this has been the statistics for many, many years, but every marriage that happens in the United States of America, between 40 and 50% of them are, have been ending in divorce for decades. Believe me, they're our neighbors. 
They're in our schools. We work with them at work. I worked with a young man, been working in the field some here lately due to some stress and pressure, we're under to finish a project on schedule. Last week for a couple of days, worked with a young man that's been working for our company for several years. I would say his age is somewhere around 26 to 28 years old. He's single. I've never worked around a young man who has as little confidence as this man does. I love his attitude. I love his personality. Just love the boy. But you can't give him a job and give him a brief description and send him out to do it and expect it will be done. Because there's a disconnect somewhere in his brain between what you tell him and the vision of how he sees it should be done. I don't know all of his history, but I know he was raised in a broken home. We keep him, and I think we will. But he is handicapped. He's the fatherless in our midst. I have a responsibility to him. They're in our church. They're in our churches. And we have a responsibility to them. They're in the DCS programs who's begging for help on every hand. They're at Kokomo Rescue Mission. They're at orphanages across the world and across this United States. And there are people who are tired and wore out and up day and night dealing for their needs. Just looking for people that are interested in pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father. And I ask myself, how has my response been to the needs of the fatherless? Psalm 68 verse 5 says that God is a father of the fatherless. He is a judge of the widows. Is God in His holy habitation. I hope if we don't do anything else today, we just simply remind us of what the heart of God is. It is towards the fatherless and the widows in His holy habitation with all He has control over. This is the big deal to God. I hope that I absorb that myself and realize how important it is. We may think our resources are zilch. We may think our resources are inadequate. We may think our resources are we're too old. We're too unworthy. We're too secluded. We're too uneducated. God isn't. You consider yourself a child of God? Of course you do. And we need to have a heart. Find and fill the needs of the fatherless at whatever stage and every opportunity that He gives me. Psalms 82 verse 3 says, Defend, which just simply means plead the cause. This word in Greek, defend, means plead the cause of the poor and the fatherless. He says there in Psalms 82.3, Do justice or vindicate the cause of. Save the afflicted and the needy. That was the cry of the psalmist. It's a cry of God. It's a cry of our text today. Cheryl and I have eight adopted grandchildren. Each of them has a very unique story. A story of brokenness, rejection, and lives that 
as long as they live, will need special attention for the things they have lacked and things that all of us come from secure homes take for granted, such as safety from abuse, such as the giving of affirmation, such as being loved and being accepted and valued, to having witnessed the scriptural and the natural love between a father and a mother. They don't have it. They don't live, many of them, in a safe world because they didn't experience a safe childhood. And because they didn't experience a safe childhood, they are prone to repeat the same mistakes that was made against them. So you see, the opposite principle works. When a child receives love, a child is told that they are loved, when a child is affirmed by their father and their mother that they are worthy because they are God's child as well as my child, they learn to believe that. And they take that belief system into their life as they grow and as they expand into relationships and into marriages and start their own homes. All of those things are perpetuated. But the very opposite is perpetuated as well. And it is very, very difficult to overcome, and there is only one way they can overcome, and it is through grace. And we hope to touch on that before we sit down. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 says, Learn to do well. If you want a goal in life, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, plead, again, or judge, again, plead, or vindicate, or defend the fatherless. Stand up for them. Make yourself available to them, not through your own strength, but how God wants to work through you because it's His heart and it's His will. Plead for the widow. One of the needs as we find the needs and the ways to reach out is, is just mentoring. There are mentoring programs that are available if that's what we would have a heart to do, which is just simply an opportunity for you to share the things you've learned, the wisdom you've learned in life with someone who has not been blessed with the same opportunities you've had. Mentoring. Mentoring young people about life. It's an area that I would like to spend more time on, though I don't feel I have much to offer. I'm getting to a point in life where we have the time. I have no excuse. Not much time left. Now, willing am, am I to share? my experiences in life, good and bad, mistakes and successes, mentoring. There's a great need for it amongst us. There's a great need for it here in this, of people sitting on the benches here at Color Ridge today. In our trips to Virginia, many, many trips to Virginia, we entered into a relationship of a a young girl there that during our time there was baptized, became a sister in the faith. And it so happened that she lost her mother to a very sudden and untimely death. I would guess she would have probably been 11, 12 years old when her mother passed away and it was a very crucial time in her life. While we was making these trips and we reached out to her said the best things we knew to say. But what happened was, is after that, every trip we made in Virginia, to Virginia, every Sunday, 
as soon as service was over, she would get up from her seat on the back row of the meeting house, wherever it was being held, and she would come forward and she would open my vest pocket and stick a piece of paper in my vest, turn around and walk away. On the way home, we'd usually leave on Sunday afternoons and go aways and stay. I'd reach down to my vest pocket and pull out the paper to see what it says. The first one that she put in my pocket was smile. My wife reminds me of it pretty often. She says, you get up there and you act like you've lost your best friend. You need to smile. You need to act like you're happy. And, and this, this young sister reminded me of that too. But the papers kept coming. We're not there and not been active for the last year or so there, but Tuesday of annual meeting, Cedarville, 12 o'clock, we was done. Last prayer had been offered and the last song sung. And we brethren that was there on the conference committee stood up and began to tell each other goodbye. I greeted a brother and told him goodbye and turned around into the embrace of this young sister. I have no idea how she got to the stage. I have no idea where she was sitting. But she hugged me and hugged me and hugged me. And then stuck a piece of paper in my vest. It's just the rewards of a not much of an effort on my part. It was the rewards of a a young girl who lost her mother. A very untimely time in life. She just needs support. You know somebody like that. You have either children or children's children or someone in this congregation or someone else somewhere. You know people like that that need mentors. For some reason, fathers in my generation, and I think generations preceding me, felt like that it was not it was not cool or it was not manly to set a son down and explain to him about life and about wisdom and about what's right and wrong, about how a man should present himself to God, about how a man should present himself to a girl, about how he should respect a girl, how a man should speak to a girl. My father never done that for me. My father was a good man and I love him dearly. But I tell you, we're, we're in a generation today where it has never been more necessary or never more pertinent that fathers teach your sons how to be men and your daughters how to be women. Teach them. Take the time, make the effort. For Christ our High Priest, it says in Hebrews 5 verse 2, who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way for thee, that He Himself is all so compassed with infirmity. Jesus was too. But He laid down His life that we might have life. The last thing we want to talk about here quickly is fathers prioritizing family. You've got to make it a priority. If we're going to deal with fatherless and the issue of fatherless and that it's not perpetuated in our family and in our congregations and in the people we know, we've got to prioritize family. It says in 1 John chapter 2, I write unto you fathers because you have known Him that is from the beginning. I have written unto you fathers because ye have known Him that is from the beginning. In two verses in a row, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, He says, Fathers, you have known Him that is from the beginning. I write unto you this, then, 
for all that is in the world. Here he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of the Father, John says, and it's not. But it's of the world, and the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. just want to think about that for myself. I acknowledge this morning, it's not been difficult for me to get up at 5 a.m. every workday for the last 36 years and go to work. I don't think that I've ever complained about it. I enjoy it. I've been motivated by the challenges, by the schedules, by the deadlines, by the stress, and by the rewards of my job. Might as well admit it. I acknowledge this morning that I am motivated by days gone by and the memories of days gone by and my boyhood. And I perpetuate that and I put it into, I put it into uh, something physical by digging up things that's old and in need of restoration and working on them. I take tractors and garden tractors and gas engines and I can spend time and money untold sometimes to restore them to a usable or just maybe an eye-catching piece. And I park them in my barn and put blankets over them so they don't catch dust. And my children and my grandchildren wonder where we've been. I acknowledge to you this morning that there are many, many times in my life, and still are, that I would struggle justifying my use of time when there are issues that need to be addressed with my wife and my marriage. I acknowledge this morning that when the pressure to be a husband or a dad gets too great, I can easily disappear into some project in the barn at any good time and could defend what was important about it, but leave those in the house that considers me the most lousy escape artist there ever was. Not willing to address things that are important. I acknowledge to you this morning that I already know whether at the throne of God or when the books are opened that the Bible talks about or at the funeral parlor at the visitation of my death, that the conversations there to my children and my grandchildren is not going to center on my job, my hobbies, or my escape techniques. The discussion or silence thereof will be indicative of how I loved and nurtured the relationships I was responsible for in my life. To God, my family, my brethren in Christ. I know that because I've been to a lot of visitations in my time. And so why do I prioritize the things that have nothing to do with eternity? Because we live in the flesh. We live in the flesh. And the world is ever-present. And the escape avenues are many. I just encourage us this morning 
that if we're going to raise up families that love God, we have to prioritize them. We have to prioritize the relationships. We have to spend time in conversations that are not comfortable. We have to spend time in the Word of God to be consistent, to be habitual in teaching that the Word of God is my stay. It is my foundation. It is my life. And there will always be resistance offered. There will always be opportunities offered by the adversary on the things that are most important in life. Last Monday morning, the thing that I want to emphasize as we close today is that with all that, as we prioritize faith and wisdom and passing that on in our families, we're still all going to stand in need of grace. Last Monday morning, I was standing in front of a control panel. The Inari Greenhouse in West Lafayette. We were very busy and trying to tie some things up. And one of our employees, whom I have a great deal of respect for, his name is Ryan. He had his tools strapped on. He was walking by and he walked by and he backed up a couple steps. He said, Daryl, I got a story for you. I said, what's that? He said, well, he said, uh, had an unusual thing happen. We, as you know, our boys play, play baseball, little league. And he said, we was a little league game Saturday afternoon. And he said, there was a group of us parents sitting together and he said, there was a, a woman sitting there with us that was married to a, a man that I went to school with. And he said, we were friends. He said, we weren't real close friends, but we were good friends. And he says, as I got older, I realized that this friend came from a very dysfunctional home. And he said, as he got older, he began to date this girl, this woman. He said, that was sitting in the stand Saturday, and she was also from a dysfunctional, broken home. Both of them raised by one parent. He said, I guess you would say they were just like... Families on the other side of the tracks when I grew up. But he said they got married. And he said as they got married, uh, we all wondered whether this marriage would last. But he said a year or so after they was married, they had a son and his name was Cameron. And they said Cameron was a blessing to them, and they embraced Cameron, it seemed like, and we didn't see them very often, but from time to time we would see them. And and uh, he said, we realized that they had a lot of issues, and they still had a lot of struggles in life. But he said when Cameron was three years old, he had a little sister born into the family, and they named her Bailey. Now he said, this story that I'm telling you, this mother told us in the stands to a whole group of parents last just this past Saturday. He said Bailey was born and Cameron loved Bailey. They got along really, really great. He loved his little sister. When Bailey was one year old, something happened. She started to get sick. We took her to the doctor and the doctor sent us to the hospital and we found out that she had leukemia. And as they began to treat Bailey for leukemia, he said, she says, Mother said, our, 
Our lives was totally upside down. A doctor called us in one day and he said, Bailey is going to have to have a bone transplant, a bone marrow transplant. We need to test your family to see who possibly could be a donor. And so mom and dad and, and Cameron went in and had bone marrow drawn out and it was all tested and it so happened that it was Cameron that had the match for the bone marrow. This four-year-old boy, that evening when they got home from the hospital, told his mother and dad, said, we need to pray for Bailey. Mom and dad didn't know how to pray. They'd never been taught how to pray. They had never prayed with Cameron. He was four years old. They had no idea. She, she told all the parents around her. She said, to this day, we don't know how Cameron learned to pray. But she said that evening Cameron prayed. He prayed for Bailey. He prayed for himself. A day or so later, the doctors called them back in and said that we want you to understand, Cameron, and we want you to understand, Mom and Dad, that this isn't a sure thing. If this bone marrow was taken away from Cameron and it is injected into the bones of Bailey, there's an outside chance, a percentage point, chance that they both will die. And I want you to make sure that you're ready to commit. But they also both might be healed. And it's a decision you have to make. And so the parents went back home that evening and Cameron said, let's pray again. Mom and Dad didn't pray. Cameron prayed. And they took Cameron the next day to the hospital and said, let's do it. They took the bone marrow out of that four-year-old boy's leg. They injected it into that young girl, that one-year-old girl, Bailey. And by and by, she was healed. And today, she is cancer-free. And Bailey, or not Bailey, but Cameron is a 12-year-old, and he was out on the field playing Little League a week ago Saturday. And his mother, in the midst of all these parents, said right out there is a testimony to the faith of a young boy. And Ryan, as he was talking to me and told me that story, said all of us parents encircled this lady. And our question was, but what about you? What do you believe? What have you witnessed about the goodness of God and about the prayers of a boy? But he said we were all mesmerized by the story. What this woman was telling was a story of grace. A story of grace that God had brought to pass in her family and her home. And I have to wonder, knowing their background and what Ryan described to me of this mother and their father coming from broken homes and having committed themselves to each other and committed themselves at least to marriage and committed themselves to at least a foundational home for their children. If God didn't look down and bless them with grace, He blessed them with tribulation, He blessed them with a trial, and then He blessed them by pouring out His grace on the healing of their children that somehow the parents might be saved. Sometimes it's all backwards. In this case it was. But fathers, we have a responsibility to prioritize our families. The last thing is, is, I think it's so true, number five, that faithful fathers determine our future. Faithful fathers determine the future of this country. Faithful fathers determine the, the, the Homes of this land. Faithful fathers determine the future of Cutler Ridge and, and Christendom in, in general. 
that if you're willing to believe God and seek after pure religion, I believe He'll send grace unto you too. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 says, Moreover, it is required in stewards. And that word means manager of a household. We just know it as fathers. It is required in stewards that a man be be found faithful. No one can replace you or fill your God-given responsibility to bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, fathers. It's yours to do. 1 Corinthians 4, a little later in verse 15, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, though you hear this message, however it might be interpreted to you today through the Spirit, yet have ye not many fathers, but in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Apostle said, Apostle Paul said, I have begotten you, just simply meaning to engender, to cause, to arise, to excite you through the gospel. We don't have any other purpose today. We just like to call us out. We'd like to excite us today as fathers that we have an opportunity that millions of people in the United States of America and multiplied millions of people throughout this world don't have. Let's accept it. Let's be faithful stewards. Let's be an instructor for Christ Jesus in our homes that we might teach our children faith and teach their children the Lord that we might teach our children the moral principles that keeps families and relationships and countries intact. And it's not easy. Faithful fathering is the hardest, yet most fulfilling endeavor we as fathers will ever endeavor to do. It's hard work. We talk about that so often as we watch our children raising grandchildren. It's hard work. Every day they share their burdens. We know it's hard work, but fathering and grandfathering is just as hard work. And a redeemed world is only possible through a redeemed heart. And it's our responsibility to lead our children to Jesus Christ. In this podcast we watched, there was the interview was interviewing a woman in prison. She'd been there for many years. She had a rough life. She told a little bit about it. But her life had changed. And this is what she said. She said, prison is the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Because I found freedom in Jesus Christ here. From the bondage of brokenness and fatherlessness that I knew in my previous life, I am free in Christ Jesus. That's how we meet the needs of the fatherless, as we teach them Jesus. We find them. We make an effort to teach them Jesus. That's how we meet the needs of our widows in our midst. It's pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. To share with them Jesus. To share with them hope. To share with them principles that will guide them through this life on in to eternity. The Lord bless us.